so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Why do we seek to preserve religious liberty? Because every human being has intrinsic worth and is made in the image of God. Jennifer Marshall discusses how these facts affect our commitment to life, marriage, and religious liberty. Let's listen to her talk now. Well, over the last couple of weeks, the nation has been stunned by the videos that we've been seeing of Planned Parenthood and some of the gruesome things that they appear to be engaged in. And they've exposed brutal realities that are prompting some very deep questions of us as a society. Is this really going on in America? What kind of a society would allow this to go on? Is this who we want to be? Well, as horrific as the revelations have been, the depth of reflection that they are prompting is a sign of hope. It's causing people to wake up and conscience to wake up from a slumber with the hunch that there's something deeply wrong here and that we need to set about making it right, that we were created for better than this. Well, such moments are rare in the 24-7 chattering news cycle of the cable news and the bickering and partisanship of politics today. And that is what gives politics a bad name, of course. It's caused many people to disengage from it including quite a few Christians. But ultimately, what we call politics is one part of a much larger human endeavor to figure out how to do this life together and to answer questions like the Planned Parenthood videos are bringing up about who we are as a society and where we want to go. And if that is the question, if those are the questions, then as Christians, we must be engaged in it. We have a responsibility to take part in answering those questions because we serve the creator and Lord of the universe. For the Christian, citizenship is about stewardship. Politics brings together fallen human beings to sort out our lives on earth together. Christians are called not just to engage in that endeavor, but to ennoble it. We have a particular responsibility to reason together when it comes to some very fundamental issues that are the great challenges of our generation. And among these are life and marriage and religious liberty. But we need to address these not as discrete issues or, and certainly not as special interest concerns. We stand for life, for marriage and religious liberty because we are committed to the common good. These issues are anchored deeply in the way that God has made the world for the flourishing of all people. 
They are tied to principles that matter for the good of our neighbors in a whole range of ways. Principles that give us a good framework for thinking about politics generally. And these are the image of God, shalom, and the human longing for the transcendent. So first, we stand for life because we respect the image of God in our fellow human beings. The reason we seek to protect human life from conception to natural death, the reason we want to guard the unborn and give women a better choice than abortion, the reason we want to dispel the false choice of assisted suicide and provide better care to those suffering from terminal illnesses, the reason we do all these things is because every human being has intrinsic worth. As Christians, we name that human worth Imago Dei. Beyond establishing the ground for the right to life, being made in the image of God means that we are made for relationships because we, are, we follow a triune God. Human flourishing has a lot to do with relationships. So why does this matter to public policy? Well, for one thing, it means that we cannot diagnose the problems around us as merely material, and we can't reduce the aims of public policy to material well-being. To be made in the image of the Creator also means that we're designed after His pattern for work and for rest. Christians should seek public policies that reflect these realities of human nature made in the image of God, and I'll say more about what that might look like in a minute. We promote marriage as we seek the shalom of our neighbors. Now, throughout American history, government recognized marriage as an institution that preceded it and that was essential to the welfare of society. Marriage brought together the two halves of humanity for the future of humanity. And by acknowledging this pre-political institution of marriage, government was limiting itself and acknowledging an authority beyond itself. This deference in public policy corresponded to the outworking of the biblical idea of shalom. The first cultural task that God gave human beings in the garden was to care for creation, to order human community in a way that reflects his design for human flourishing or shalom. To help with this, God ordained the institutions of family, church, government with distinct roles and responsibilities. So one way to think about shalom on a social level is the right relationships among these institutions and individuals. The family, centered on marriage as the union of a man and a woman, is the primary institution, the basic unit of society and the first community. The church is the earthly expression of Christ's spiritual kingdom. It transcends this earthly existence. And at the same time, it's a public institution in the public square. You can think about the image of an old New England town where the church, with its steeple pointing towards heaven, was right there on the town square, next to the city hall, next to the shops and commerce, next to the houses. That's a picture of the public presence of the church testifying to higher realities. Government, God has ordained to keep the peace through the rule of law and to use force to punish those who break it. It maintains justice and peace in society so that other institutions, particularly the family and the church, can do what they were designed to do. And this is one reason why the redefinition of marriage is so disconcerting. In mandating same-sex marriage for all 50 states, the Supreme Court didn't just get marriage wrong, 
It got government wrong. Instead of respecting the institution of marriage that came before it, government usurped the authority to remake it. Well, third, we seek to preserve religious liberty because every human being has a longing for the transcendent. And this means that we should be free to seek answers to ultimate questions and to live by those answers when we find them. For Christians, that means we live in accordance with the transcendent moral order. Even if a legislature or court says otherwise, the created truth about marriage, the union of a man and a woman, will not change. Even if policy asserts that gender is a social construct rather than a biological reality, that does not change the truth of Genesis 1 and 2, that we are created male and female for each other. As Christians, we must speak and act in accord with these biblical truths, regardless of what the laws of the land may say. Right and wrong are not a shifting standard, a majority opinion, nor congressional votes can change that. It is this confidence in a transcendent moral order that has led Christian ethics over the centuries to shine a light that exposes error, injustice, and corruption in society. Well, what would this look like to apply this framework that I've been talking about to a, a cluster of policy issues? I want to take poverty as an example. And scripture is very clear that we are to care for our neighbors in need. It's a non-negotiable. The, the reflection that we need to have on it is how do we do that effectively? And in America, need frequently shows up where family isn't around as a first line of support. A child born and raised outside of marriage today is five times more likely to experience poverty than one who is born and raised in a home with a married mother and father. And if that kind of stark reality of relational breakdown is part of what leads to poverty, we should make every effort to prevent it. Churches have enormous potential to take on this challenge. We know something about restored relationships, after all, in the church. That's what it's all about. The relational capital that rests in congregations can be harnessed to serve the suffering uh, who, are, who are having the effects of this collapse of their most intimate relationships and to prevent that cycle from repeating itself in the next generation. A few years back, we did a program, a publication called Seek Social Justice, and this was a world uh, magazine and Compass Cinema, and in that project, we captured the story of a man named Roderick who had been selling drugs in the area of Dallas. He lived with his girlfriend, Alicia, in a housing project and had several, had four children together with her. There was a ministry that came from a church across town to play basketball with Roderick and his buddies. Through that ministry, he became a Christian. And through discipleship, he became convicted that he needed to marry the mother of his children. Well, his wedding day was the first time he had ever witnessed a marriage, a wedding ceremony. And so meanwhile, across town, a couple named Ron and Cheryl had become empty nesters. They were well off and they were looking for how to uh, minister in this season of their lives. They approached a leader in their church. That leader said, I've got a very specific challenge for you. I want you to be a part of the life of Roderick and Alicia as they are learning how to be married and don't have examples of that in their lives. And so they did that. They spent holidays and Sunday afternoons and picnics together. And Ron and Cheryl mentored and befriended and they became wonderful, lovely friends that learned from one another. 
That kind of creativity is what we need to unlock in the church to be responsive to the problems and the culture around us. Now, prevention, of course, is only part of the picture when fighting poverty, and sometimes intervention is necessary. In these instances, it's important that government assistance work in harmony with the way people are made. And that means they need to, public programs need to recognize the significance of work as critical to our design in the image of God. When government provides aid that discourages work for those who are, who are able, it ignores this reality of human nature and disserves those who it was intended to help. Well, the same principles and impulses that prompt us to take a stand on life and marriage and religious liberty commit us to the welfare of our neighbor and the good of the community as a whole. Well, the last few months have certainly underscored for us the need to continue to stand for life and marriage and religious liberty. And they've made clear that we must explain how these are connected to the good of our neighbors. We've seen a firestorm of protest over an Indiana religious freedom law that was a common sense kind of proposal. Supreme Court mandating same-sex marriage, punitive fines on those who were simply trying to live in their daily businesses according to conscience, not having to use their expressive capacities to facilitate a same-sex ceremony. Well, obviously this has led to some concern, but over the course of this summer, as I've listened to some hand-wringing among people, I've become concerned and, and want to share these two cautions. First, for the Christian, fatalism is a flawed outlook. Cynicism is a sin. Fatalism is flawed and cynicism is a sin. So to guard against falling into fatalism and cynicism as we consider these challenges around us, and they are many, here are five recommendations. First, don't prognosticate, pray. Very few of us are called to be pundits. It's not our business to predict the outcome of any particular episode in public life, but it most certainly is our business to pray about it. Let's not undercut the prayer of faith with a prediction to the contrary. Second, don't despair, do something. We can spend a lot of time talking about cultural problems without ever asking what we can do to solve them. If you don't know what to do, find someone who does and help them or ask what you can do to be a part of the solution. Third, make sure conversations about life, marriage, and religious liberty are directed towards action, not inaction. It's easy to get in the habit of talking about issues in a way that they seem so big, no effort on our part could possibly change them. Third, fourth, sorry, replace a sense of of resignation with a sense of responsibility for the future. Renewal begins with individual choices compounding into social change. And finally, remember that for the Christian, citizenship is about stewardship. Sitting on the sidelines is not an option. Some of us are called to equip Christians for citizenship through preaching and teaching. Others are called to work directly in the political process. All of us are called for stewardship in our roles as citizens. And I'm grateful to the ARLC for this day to equip us to do just that. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the ERLC podcast. 
Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and leave us a review. And tune in next week for a discussion about the undercover Planned Parenthood videos of 2015.